Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 165 of the John Riley Project. Hey, thanks for joining me. You know, this is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we're live streaming. You know, it's been our new thing. We're trying to do this scheduled gig every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2 o'clock, live streaming on YouTube and on Facebook. You can look up my page, John Riley Project, and you can take in the live stream. And of course, during the live stream, we, we're always happy to take questions and comments from the audience. So if you have something to share, please type it into the comment section and I'll read it on the air and we'll have a little bit of a dialogue that way. But, you know, this podcast also, we upload it to all the popular podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. I mean, listen live. I mean, we're on a, at least 10 of them right now. And, um, you know, we've actually been really experiencing some nice growth in the number of audio only podcast downloads, especially this last couple of weeks, it's really taken off. Uh, we're seeing a lot more growth in our YouTube views and downloads. And, and I think, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're starting to do this, um, you know, more consistently. And on one hand, I think people are having an opportunity to look forward to the episodes more consistently, but secondly, it, it kind of, Part of it is the discipline of me putting out content so frequently now. And the more content I have out there, the more engagement we have with audience. And it's great. So overall, I'm really happy to see a lot of uh, growth there. Um, But today we're going to talk about, God, we're going to talk about a bunch of things. I I really want to talk about, um, you know, RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her passing and the Republicans and, and, you know, some of the things that were happening over the weekend. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, yes, I'm going to talk a little bit about the San Diego Padres. And then I'm going to really get into this whole idea of addition by subtraction. And I talked um, a little bit about that concept about, I don't know, five or six episodes ago, but I just had some really interesting moments um, that happened to me over the weekend that are really reflective of this concept. And it's interesting because it applies to things in our personal life, in our business life. It applies to things in, um, in politics, too, where less is more, where we get addition by subtraction. And so I'm going to really kind of explore that idea. Um, But um, yeah, so again, if you have any questions, comments, leave them in the in the comments section and I'll get back to you. We'll we'll have a conversation there. But the first thing I just write at the top of the schedule, I got to have a big shout out to the San Diego Padres um, and all the fans of the San Diego Padres. They made the playoffs for the first time in 14 years. You know, the drought is is over. Um, you know, maybe the San Diego sports curse is being diminished a little bit, but it was great to see the team do really well. Now, granted, they still have like a week left of the regular season. They have playoffs coming. Um, this is just step one in a uh, process, you know. So it's funny, you know, there's a lot of people here in San Diego really celebrating. There were fans down at the stadium cheering on the team on the side of the road, you know, because they couldn't watch the game in the stadium. So as the players were leaving, they were, you know, giving them all kinds of celebration and virtual high fives. And it's just nice to see that kind of celebration and happiness here in San Diego, not just because of COVID, 
Um, but because for Padre fans, including myself, I've been following this team religiously for over 30 years. And in those 30 years, they've only made the playoffs four times, actually a grand total of five times in the team's history. So this is just one of the toughest sports franchises to be a fan of because they've just been unsuccessful for so, so long. And so it's nice that, you know, the worm is turning, as they say. So I, I just think it's just fantastic The the players, um, you know, there we have a lot of really good players on the team, really good attitudes. There's a lot of great chemistry on the team. They're playing for all the right reasons. Um, love seeing that, um, you know, the ownership kind of got their act together uh, five, six years ago, put together a plan. A.J. Preller, the general manager, has done a great job. Um, the new manager, Jace Tingler, I think has done a fantastic job rallying the boys, communicating with the fans and the press. Just He's just a really good leader of men. I, I feel really good about him. And then really just – you know, it's just this is just a good thing for San Diego. Now, you know, some people are saying, well, yeah, you know, the Yankees didn't celebrate making the playoffs and neither did the Dodgers. Well, yeah, but the Padres haven't made the playoffs in 14 years. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating hitting your initial goal, you know, and patting yourself on the back. It's, it's the way we build self-esteem. We should celebrate our wins, celebrate our victories, no matter how small. And I think that applies in our personal life and our business life. And it applies even if you're a Padre fan. So sometimes you see some of those old school people are like, you know, you should just play like you've been there before and you don't need to be celebrating making the playoffs. Well, screw that, man. <laughs> Celebrate your wins, you know, feel good about yourself. It's okay to be prideful, especially when you've had a major achievement and, and good for them. So the, the playoffs probably won't start until you know, next week, probably about a week from today or so is when we can expect that to start. So that should be great. So really happy for the Padres. And then also, um, as long as we're talking about sports and Padres, um, my frequent guest on the podcast, David Leland, um, who's a, a, a young man here from Poway. Actually, both of my children know David, went to high school with him. Um, we made a highlight reel for David Leland. And if you go on my YouTube page, uh, check it out. It's like about three and a half minutes and just all kinds of his comments. And, and he, he has amazing recall of stats and history. And the, the young man is a, is a great sports talent. Um, I was really happy to put together a highlight reel for him. And he's got a, a future ahead of him somewhere in media, whether it's television or radio or a podcast. I'd love to see David have his own podcast. I think he would be terrific. Uh, but uh, put together a little highlight reel for him. So if you're a fan of the Padres or the Aztecs or a fan of David Leland, be sure to check that out. And it's on my John Riley Project YouTube page. Um, okay, so let's get into um, a little bit about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And you know, everyone talks about the notorious RBG, you know, kind of a, a takeoff off the rapper, the notorious B.I.G. And I, I, I always have to, like, pause and think because my brain wants to say RGB, like red, green, blue, like a computer monitor or like a color system, you know, because I, mean, I, I work in marketing. And sometimes, you know, when you 
create product, uh, you create print files, you know, they go to print, they have to be CMYK, not RGB. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg is RBG. So I got to always think that in my mind. Actually, the, the mnemonic should be the Bee Gees, you know, like uh, Robin and Andy and, and Morris. So uh, yeah, Ruth BG, RBG. That's actually a new new way for me to think of it. But anyways, um, obviously an icon in American history and uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, if you had a chance to see the movie um, on the basis of sex, um, I can't recommend it enough. I mean, I knew quite a bit about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I didn't know much about her backstory. And boy, that movie did a great job talking about how you know, she was, a, you know, a young teenager, but obviously brilliant. Um, she worked her way. I think it was Harvard Law. And, you know, that was an all boys club and she was discriminated against and and kind of sneered at because she was a woman and she had to fight for everything that she earned. And at the same time, you know, she um, had a husband and she was raising children as a young uh, as a young mother. And then, you know, she began clerking and then had her own practice and eventually was fighting for equality of rights. And I just think that's an extraordinarily righteous um, quest. You know, it's kind of like the Declaration of Independence, which we talk about all the time on this podcast. There's that one line, you know, all men are created equal. And, you know, obviously in the context of how that's written, um, when they said all men are created equal, I mean, they mean men as in humans, uh, which means both sexes. Um, but, you know, back then, the the founders philosophically, I always stand by this, philosophically, they got it right. Um, now, the implementation of those ideals has taken a very long time. I mean, obviously, in, you know, in, in, in 1776, women didn't have equal rights. Blacks didn't have equal rights. This idea of all men are created equal probably sounded pretty crazy back then. Uh, but it is the right idea. And, it, you know, what it means in the religious sense is, is that everyone is equal in the eyes of God. But really more in the political sense is that we all have equal rights. And to me, that's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg is all about. And in her case, she was really fighting for the rights of women. Um, and if you roll the clock back to the fifties and sixties and, you know, even though women had the right to vote by then, there were still, it was a, a two tiered society. Um, so you got to give her massive credit uh, for that work. And, as a result, you know, she's become almost like a pop star, a cult hero. You see T-shirts, you know, of this this old lady, you know, with uh, with glasses and and, you know, celebrated on the T-shirts of people that are in their teens and early 20s. And so it's kind of cool to see an 80 year old woman celebrated by young people. I actually I guess Bernie Sanders falls into that camp as well. Um and, you know, so I think on the basis of equal rights, she's she's tremendous and needs to be praised. I can't praise her enough for that. Now, you know, she's no angel. She's not perfect. I mean, she did some things that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, you know, she was a person that supported the um, Affordable Care Act. And as um, do-gooder of a policy as that seems for many people, it still is one where people were forced to buy corporate health insurance they could face a fine. Um, and you know, this idea of uh, 
of mandated corporatism flies in the face of our inalienable rights, like liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And why they wanted to mandate health insurance, because then everyone has skin in the game. Everyone is participating. Uh, people are covering, you know, you know, carrying their weight. I get that, you know, because they wanted to minimize, you know, people without insurance clogging up the emergency room. They wanted to essentially manage the financial model. I get it and that, but still the federal government can't mandate people to buy a corporate product. I mean, that just violates the very basis of individual rights and freedom. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg, again, overall should be hugely celebrated. It should be um, someone in the history books that, you know, future generations really pay attention to. Um, she's not she's not perfect. You know, she definitely has her flaws. But, you know, she is in the sort of in the spirit of a of a liberal judge, a progressive judge. And so for me, you know, as a liberty, liberty minded person, there's going to be areas where I'm going to be highly aligned with her and other areas where I will not be highly aligned. But I still have even where I disagree with her, I have always had huge respect for her. So, you know, and credit to uh, President Bill Clinton for nominating her to the court. And I think. You know, when that happened, that was also a major deal, because I think before that, there was only other, one other woman that had made the court. What was her name? Was it? Um, it was. Uh, what is it? It was. O'Connor. What was her first and middle name? I know it was Sarah. I can't recall her full name, but it was O'Connor. I think was did Ronald Reagan put her on the court? I know she was on the court in the 80s. And I think that was the first woman to serve on the court. I think um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg might have been the second. So, again, cool. Good for them. Um, And it is kind of fun to think about how. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was really good friends with former um, Supreme Court Justice Anton Scalia. And those two, I think it's a shame that they're um, not both alive uh, today because they really represented, you know, two extraordinarily different political views, different philosophical views Yet they were able to put a lot of that aside and they still had a friendship, a really strong friendship, great respect for one another. Um, I think that is really neat. And I think we need to see more of that because in our society today, we're we're so divided. Um, Red versus blue, liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat, red states and blue states. And, um, you know, it's nice to see that we can get beyond politics. Nice to see people can develop relationships, even if they are of different points of view. Now, of course, there's that other, what's the other couple? It's Mary Matlin and um, James Carville. They're the other ones. Matlin, um, I think, worked for George H.W. Bush. And then James Carville was an architect of President Bill Clinton's campaign in 92. They're married. Um, They're both kind of a little bit wacky. They're a little bit off center, each of them. So, um, you know, that's, I guess, a case of opposites attract. Uh, But it's fun seeing them. Usually now in the media, you only see one at a time. You don't see both of them. But it is kind of cool that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anton Scalia were really close friends. And I didn't really know that very much until we were near or the end of Scalia's life or shortly thereafter, where I began to learn more about their friendship. Uh, Maybe they just kind of kept it under wraps, you know, because it was private. I don't think it was romantic at all. I think it was purely platonic, the the way that I had heard of it. Um, 
But I think that was really neat. So, you know, again, you know, rest in peace, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, rip RBG, um, you know, really a passing of a legend. And so then that opens up, um, you know, the the whole notion of what's going to happen on the Supreme Court. And this is where things just got really crazy. You know, on one hand, um, you know, a lot of the Republicans, a lot of Trump supporters have been salivating for this moment, you know, kind of in some cases sort of mean spirited, um, waiting for um Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. So a new Supreme Court justice could be appointed by President Trump. And, you know, of course, he already put Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the court. Um, Could he have possibly put a third judge on the court in just his one term, which is pretty amazing um, if this is what's going to end up happening. But, you know, immediately this started like, you know, within hours of her passing, we started hearing it and not just from, you know, a bunch of whack jobs on social media, but it was in the so-called mainstream media. Even President Trump was commenting on it. Other Republican um, senators were commenting on it, you know, immediately about how this the seat was going to be replaced. And um, obviously a lot of liberals were really upset, like, oh, my God, can't we at least mourn her death before we politicize this and turn it into something? Um And yeah, I get that. But this whole world is just so political these days. So immediately, you know, they're going to jump to that. But the the thing with this is it's interesting. I I was in some really interesting conversations with some Republicans and some Republicans that I think are hardcore Trumpers. And then other cases are Republicans that maybe are a little bit more aligned with me on freedom issues. And we were discussing the idea of should the Republicans nominate another Supreme Court justice? And obviously, constitutionally, they have that right. Um, you know, the, the president should be able to put a candidate forward. The Senate certainly has the right to confirm that person. And constitutionally, absolutely, the Republicans have the right to do so. And it would be within their power to do so. And I don't think you can object to that at that level. But the question was, is, is it ethical? And, you know, some might say, well, we're, you know, just six weeks out from an election. Is this the right time to do it? Well, that's part of the ethical side of it. But really, if the Democrats were in this position, they would probably nominate someone, too. You know, they would. And you can't blame them. I mean, if if they are in power in the White House, in the Senate, I mean, a lot of times this is why a lot of these politicians are elected specifically to help build the Supreme Court to their liking. Um, now, again, you know, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm just kind of going through this logically in my mind. So constitutionally, they have the right to do it. And if they are in that power position, you would expect them to do it, even if it is near the election. But the part that was so discouraging was, of course, what happened in 2016 with Merrick Garland. And Merrick Garland, of course, was the the judge that was going to be nominated by President Obama. I don't know if he actually formally nominated him or not, but definitely the the, the Senate um, led by uh, the Republican um, leader, Mitch, Mitch McConnell, um, they refused to um, go through the process of doing hearings to potentially nominate Merrick Garland. And I, again, I remember at that time, I was thinking to myself, well, they have the power to do that 
because they are in the majority, it's not really the right thing to do. I mean, they really should fill that spot. But, you know, if they're playing a political game, I can't really blame them to a certain degree. But they said and their criteria was, well, we can't do this now because we're in an election. There's going to be a new president in less than a year. We need to let the people decide. So that was the excuse they gave, which was clearly bullshit. I mean, clearly their objective was to prevent a Obama nominee from being on the bench. Um, but they used the excuse that, that in the final year of a presidential term is not the time to nominate and confirm a new Supreme Court justice. In fact, um, Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, there's there's video. I even retweeted one of the videos where he was on record. He says, you can take me at my word that um, in the final year or uh, in the final year of a president's term, we should never nominate and confirm a new Supreme Court justice. And he said that the, that should be the, he said this in 2012, but he said in 2016, whether we have a Republican or a Democrat president, he goes, I will stand by that. And of course, what do you think Lindsey Graham says now? He goes, no, I support the president. And and he's a complete two-faced hypocrite on this. And a lot of the Republicans are hypocrites on this. And this is the part that bugs me because there's so much corruption and BS that goes on in Washington, D.C. But when this sort of thing happens, it just goes to a, a completely new depth uh, to a lower level in the gutter because it's it's such it's such a big fat lie is what it is and it's just hanging out there like a matzo ball everyone can see it but the the democrats call him out on the lie but then the republicans they don't care. They don't care that it's hypocritical. They don't care that it's dishonest. They don't care that this um, diminishes their integrity. They only care about power and control. And that's what I said in my previous podcast about this whole notion of political power versus individual initiative. When it comes down to it, these politicians don't really care about you. They don't. What they really do is they care about their own power and they will do anything. They will say anything to retain that power. And it doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. They both do it. Now, granted, lately, the Republicans have, you know, (laughs) have gone to um, extreme levels on this and we're seeing this play out. But to me, it's, you know, you, you, I've had some of some of these conversations um, with friends online and you try to bring up the the notion of honesty and integrity and the idea that a, a Supreme Court justice shouldn't be nominated in the final year. And they say, so what? You know, we have power. This is the spoils of victory. And the Democrats would do the same damn thing. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But you guys said one thing and now you're doing the other. This is hypocritical and it just doesn't seem to matter. As long as their team is winning, it doesn't matter. The ends justify the means that it's immoral, unethical doesn't matter. As long as their team wins, as long as their team has control and has power. So what's going to happen next time when the, when the roles are reversed, the Democrats are going to escalate it to another level 
and piss off the Republicans. And it's going to continue to get more ugly and more divisive. And that's the problem we have in this severely politicized world. Whereas, um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anton Scalia, people of diverse, divergent political and philosophical perspectives, they are really good friends, great respect for one another. But man, the elected politicians, no ethics, no integrity, hypocrisy, who cares as long as they win, as long as they retain power and retain control. So this is, was just so disappointing. And then, of course, you know, our friends on the left, you know, they were shrieking, you know. And so now you're hearing lots of escalation. You know, people are some extremists online are saying, well, if the Republicans nominate and approve another justice, we're going to burn everything down. And sometimes you wonder, hmm, is that legit or are these people calling for a revolution? Is that a tiny minority? Is it is it? reflective truly of progressives or are these extremists or, you know, shit disturbers like we're seeing at some of these protests where, you know, people from out of town, anarchists want to just come in and, you know, essentially burn everything down. Is that what we're seeing? You know, so um, it's just it's just going to keep getting worse and worse because they just keep fighting amongst each other. And the fighting isn't just in Washington, D.C. It's online. It's in the streets um, of Portland and Kenosha. It's even in the streets um, here locally. So um, amazing, unbelievable. So, you know, someone else brought up an interesting point, and, and, and they said that if the death of an 87-year-old Supreme Court justice freaks you out so much because you're afraid you're going to lose rights that are guaranteed to you. Maybe that actually says that the government has too much power in the first place to take away your rights. So again, all of this goes to, um, you know, Roe v. Wade. I mean, that's really what it all comes down to, right? Um, People are afraid that another uh, conservative is going to go on the court. People are afraid I think it, w- it might end up being a six to three because I think it's five to four. Well, assuming RBG was alive, I think it was five, four leaning conservative potentially could go six, three. I think people are afraid Roe versus Wade would be overturned. I believe it will never be overturned. Um, I believe that the the issue of abortion is more powerful to Republican politicians for um, fundraising for um, creating um, divisiveness and chaos and fear uh, that I think they it works really well as a political tool for them. But I think they know that if Roe v. Wade was overturned, I mean, society would erupt. Um, you know, a good number of Republicans are pro-choice. I think I saw a poll. I think it might even be 60 to 70 percent of Americans are pro-choice. Um and my, personally, I'm very pro-choice. I think this whole notion of a woman's right to choose is perhaps the most ultimate individual right that exists. The whole notion that you own you, that you own your own body. Um, so I, I, I'm in fact, I commented on this on one of my previous podcasts, how the Roe v. Wade issue was probably one of the most seminal political topics that really pointed me in the direction of liberty. Uh, because 
I think people should have choice in their life. And I think people should be able to chart their own course. And I began applying the notion of pro-choice to not just the category of abortion, but to a wide range of issues. And it all continues to ring true to me. Um, my good friend, Jamie Tobit. Uh, chiming in on the live stream, Jamie says, maintaining power is the goal for both parties. Yes, but you can maintain power different ways. You can game the system to stay in control, like with gerrymandering, mail ballot suppression, voting access blockades. You can also stay in power by doing things that the voting population is happy about and they want more of that. So they keep voting for you. Thoughts? Okay, Jamie, you're right. Um there is a lot of gamesmanship to rig the system to maintain power and gerrymandering and mail ballot suppression and voting access blockades are excellent examples of that. Um, so are um, signature ba- gathering initiatives that make it really difficult for third parties to be elected or even to get third parties on the debate stage. All of that is also part of the process that rigs the system uh, to protect the two main parties. And especially if they're in a gerrymandered district, um, then it really maintains their power. So you're absolutely right. But the whole idea of um, maintaining power by giving the voters what they want. So voters would say, give us more of that. Ideally, that would be true. But it seems to me, from my point of view, that people are more motivated by keeping the bad guy out than they are for making sure their guy gets in. So. Now, granted, there's going to be all kinds of exceptions and everything, but I'm just speaking in very broad brushes. I'm of the opinion that the Democrats are more driven to get Trump out of office than they are supportive of Joe Biden himself. And I think the same is true on the other side. I think that the Republicans, by and large, are more supportive of keeping the liberals out of power than they are of Donald Trump himself. Now, I will say that there are a lot of people that strongly support each of those individuals, especially Donald Trump. I mean, there's almost like a little bit of a hero worship, cult worship with him. I saw a photo online where people had a Donald Trump themed wedding with a giant like, uh, you know, kind of like the cardboard cutouts of the baseball stadiums, but like 30 or 40 feet tall of President Trump at a wedding and everyone wearing red, white and blue. Um, you know, and the, those those boat parades. I mean, we can go on and on. I there's a lot of people that love Trump, but um, I think people are probably more motivated by keeping the bad guy out. The, essentially, people are voting for the lesser of evils is kind of how I see it. Um, you know, because there's a lot of Republicans that don't like Trump. Um and, but they still will support his policies, but they don't like him personally. And there's other people that just were flat out anti-Hillary in 2016. And Trump just happened to be the benefactor of that. So it's interesting how that plays out. But, yeah, it, it's all about power. That's what this all comes down to. Um, but I, yeah, in, the, in the end, I don't think Roe v. Wade's going to ever be overturned. I, never, I don't see that happening. Um, I think it would be. It would be a step backwards. It really would. Um, I think a nation that prides itself on liberty, (laughs) we have a statue of liberty um, uh, with liberty and justice for all is, you know, the the end of the of the 
um, the Pledge of Allegiance, if I recall. So if we're really about liberty, we need to be about choice. And if and and if we're about liberty, we need to be uh, Roe v. Wade has to remain the law of the land. I don't see that changing. Now, granted, there's a lot of things I didn't see coming. I didn't think Trump would be president either, but he is. But, you know, now the liberals are now saying, well, what we should do then is just pack the court. And, and instead of having nine justices, we should have 11 or 13 or 15. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And some people think, you know, in the end, it all doesn't matter because um, in the end, if Trump is, um, you know, elected or not, there's going to be another conservative on the court. Uh, But if the liberals uh, or the Democrats or Joe Biden is elected, they're going to pack the court with liberal justices. And so it's going to be a a battle royale. And it's interesting. And and I commented on this a long time ago, but Ben Sass, who is the Republican senator from Nebraska, made a really very interesting comment. And he said, we used to have three branches of government, a co-equal branches of government. We used to have a real system of checks and balances. Um, we had the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch, and they were all co-equal. He says that idea has been thrown out the window. He said that what has happened is, is that Congress, who should have tremendous power. You know, they're controlling the purse strings, power writing legislation. Congress has abdicated power. They've given up power. They have, they're afraid to take tough votes uh, because they don't want to lose an election. They don't want to offend any voters in their district. And so they punt frequently and they will just, you know, tell the president, you have the authority to make the decision. It's kind of like what happened with the Iraq war. They never declared war. They just said, President George W. Bush had the right to go to war if he so chose. That's how they wimped out on that. And we can go down the list of all the other cases where they just won't pass legislation. Now, from my point of view, sometimes that's a good thing because I like gridlock because um, if one party had full control, we get nonsense from the Republicans or nonsense from the Democrats. So in some cases, gridlock, from my perspective, is, is not necessarily a bad thing. But Congress has punted and has given up a lot of their power. Meanwhile, the executive branch is becoming more and more powerful, not just under Trump. This has been going back decades and decades and decades um, with Obama and W and Clinton and HW and Reagan and on down the line. So the the Congress and, and it used to be that the congressional, you know, the Congress, the, the legislative branch used to be the branch where there was vigorous debate. And that was the political branch, right? That was where there were a lot more elections. It was more heated, more, um, you know, more, uh, yeah, more political rhetoric. That's where a lot of the battles were. Well, now the battles are not really in the legislative branch because they are, um, you know, as I said, abdicating their power. They're not really in the executive branch because the executive and his cabinet and all the federal agencies are all working as a team, you know, huge, massive power, all these alphabet agencies from the federal government giving the executive branch, the president of the United States, huge power that they can just act on decree. You know, President Trump doing executive orders and and other presidents, Obama and others doing executive orders, but regulators enacting policy without 
they're not even elected. Regulators establishing policy that don't even go through Congress, they're just made on the spot by them. So the executive branch has become massive. But the branch that has become the most politicized now is not the legislative, but it's the judicial And that's exactly what we're seeing now. You know, so I think it probably started with Bork in the late 80s. But now every time there's a a nomination for the Supreme Court, it's this circus um, of political gamesmanship and everything. And so Ben Sass basically was saying the whole system has been distorted. The legislative branch is diminished. The executive branch is empowered. The judicial branch has been politicized. Um, it's not the system is dysfunctional. I think we can all hopefully agree on that. Um, and it's not working as it should. So, um, yeah. So will the liberals now respond by packing the court? I mean, who knows? Let's see what happens in this election. Um, we have a comment here on the live stream. And again, you're welcome to leave your comments on the uh, live stream on Facebook or YouTube. I'll read them on the air and we'll continue the conversation. Kevin Kennedy. Um, Kevin, thank you, by the way. You're a frequent uh, uh, visitor. And, and you too, Jamie. Jamie, you've uh, been on a number of these podcasts. Thanks for your support as well. Uh, Kevin Kennedy said, I was not a Trump fan until he mowed over Rand Paul and the Bush dynasty in the 2016 debates. I wanted anyone but Hillary. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of Republicans that were in that camp. They were anyone but Hillary um, and that they lined up for for um, they lined up for Trump. Now, it's interesting. The Bush dynasty, I was definitely no fan of the Bushes. Um, you know, to me, they were warmongers and corporatists. And and um, I, I just was definitely not aligned with either of them. Rand Paul, on the other hand, um, up until 2016, I was a big Rand Paul supporter. Um, I thought he had a lot of really good ideas. He's a very liberty-oriented guy, so he's usually pretty aligned with me. Um, his 2016, or actually back in 2015 when he was running for president, his platform was awesome. I thought it was a great way for a libertarian-oriented candidate to try to make more of a mainstream Um, campaign within one of the two main parties. He was doing something that his father never could do. Um, He was trying to mainstream his ideas. But the problem, of course, is is that once Trump entered the race, he sucked the oxygen out of the room and all of the other 14 other candidates couldn't, you know, get much time on the air and Trump took over and won. And then once Trump took over the party, Rand Paul, you know, flipped on a dime and now is aligned with President Trump. And so I, you know, I, you know, turned in my Rand Paul card. I'm not a supporter of him any longer because of his unprincipledness of flipping on it. So at any rate, yeah, there's a lot of people that support Trump because they just didn't want Hillary. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that will support Trump in this election because they won't support the Democrats or the liberals. Um, but, you know, speaking of Trump, my my wife and I, we were, you know, we live here in Poway, California, 92064. Um, and we were going, we go to Costco every once in a while. And, and by the way, we always go to the Costco up in the Poway Business Park. We live in North Poway. The one in Carmel Mountain Ranch is always really crowded. So we go to the one up in Poway, getting our stuff. And by the way, we're in and out of that one really fast. We get back to our house 
way faster than if we had gone to the one in Carmel Mountain, which is closer to our home. Well, anyways, we're on the way back and it's Sunday morning. It's between 11 and 12. And sure enough, on the intersection of Twin Peaks and Pomerado, all the people are out there. And remember, it used to be on one corner was the anti, well, actually roll the clock back. It used to be the anti-Bush people that were fighting against the Iraq war. And they were always on one corner. And then, you know, since Trump was elected, they became the anti-Trump group. Then, then um, you know, good old Russell here in Poway started setting up camp on the opposite corner. And he brought some of his friends. And the Trump people have just overwhelmed that intersection. Now they take up three of the four corners. And boy, we were driving through there and just all kinds of Trump flags and American flags and people out there root, rooting it up and you know, I did a podcast out there with the um, the Poway protesters. And if you have a chance to look it up, it's, you know, on both my podcast channel and my YouTube channel. I'd encourage you to check it out. It was very interesting. Um, I interviewed Russell on the on the Trump side and I interviewed uh, the leader on the um, the anti-Trump side. And the people out there were all good people. They were all positive spirits. There was no um, ugliness or animosity. They were out there for all the right reasons. They were out there, free expression, freedom of speech. They were enthusiastic for their team. It was pretty cool. But the ugliness wasn't from them. It was from the people driving by and the things that they said and the things that they did was unbelievable. Um, but at any rate, it's funny the, the, the Trump people out there, they've really taken over that intersection. And, um, It makes me wonder, like, are they all from Poway or are they like coming in from out of town? Are there intersections like this in other parts of San Diego County? I don't know. I I do know that when I drive down Carmel Mountain uh, Road and right there on the sidewalk in front of the shopping mall, there's like a 10 by 10 tent of people selling Trump merchandise. I don't know if they're rogue or if they got, you know, approval. I'm not sure how that worked. But at any rate, we're seeing these pop up tents for this sort of thing. Um, but it's interesting. And I see people out there waving the American flag and I and like signs that say liberty and freedom. And I'm thinking Trump doesn't support liberty or freedom. He's for a trade war. He's for walls. He's for blockades and embargoes. He's for um, tariffs and he's for uh, revoking um, visas for legal immigrants. He's for travel bans for legal immigration. He's for, um, you know, all sorts of policies that are, you know, he's for increasing the drone war in Asia. He's for, in my opinion, a lot of policies that run counter to the, our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that doesn't stop the Trump supporters out there waving their flags and liberty signs and everything else. So it, it is interesting. Um, but it's also interesting, too, that I love that they're out there. I love their freedom of expression. Um, and I love that for the, the on the on the anti-Trump side. In fact, I saw actually Biden flags on the anti-Trump side. Usually they've been not pro any one candidate. But now, you know, we're getting closer to the election. We're seeing that. So I love the free expression. But we all know what's going to happen, right? I mean, we don't necessarily know how the national election is going to play out. But we all know that California is going to give 100% of its electoral college votes to Joe Biden. It's a stone cold lock. In 2016, Hillary Clinton got approximately 8 million votes in the state of California. President Trump got 4 million. It was a two to one ratio, 4 million votes, the biggest landslide you can think of for a state. And 
in my opinion, it's possible that 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 ratio could even be more extreme in the favor of the Democrats. So I love that the Trump people out there supporting their guy. But in the end, you know, in California, at least, you know, the state's going to be a blue state. It's a solid blue state. I think we all know that. Um, so but again, I still love that they're out there. Um Pat Johnson um, on the podcast here in the live stream. Pat, I love him. He, Pat and I uh, served on the board at uh, Poway National Little League. You know, Pat, a veteran himself. Uh, Pat commented, I hope people don't support Trump. Um, I hope people don't support Trump. Our country can't take four more years of him. There's a lot of Trump supporters in Point Loma. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it just seems like the divisiveness and the politicization just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And, you know, of course, Trump is extremely abrasive and divisive, but so have a lot of other politicians. Uh, but it just keeps getting worse. And so could imagine if Trump was reelected, what's going to happen? Imagine if Trump loses What's going to happen? I'm, I'm of the opinion that no matter what happens, the election um, is going to be messy. Uh, it may make the 2000 election look mild. I think um, some people are speculating that this election could go back to the Supreme Court in some way, shape or form. And this replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg could ultimately be helpful to President Trump um, if the election does come down to the Supreme Court which talk about a conflict of interest. Um, so, yeah, um, could we uh, could we take another four more years of Trump? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, but could we take four more years of of Biden and, and the Democrats? You know, for some people, it's addition by subtraction. Um, that's the reason that I think a lot of people are um, going to be voting against Trump, because I think they just want anybody but him. It's interesting, too, um, how these things work in politics. I'm talking about addition by subtraction. And this is kind of the big topic I wanted to get to. And my God, we're already at 45 minutes. But usually what happens um, with politicians, especially at the at the federal level, step one, politicians discover a crisis. Step two, they create a government program to solve the crisis. Step three. That pro that um, new program creates more problems and creates a real problem. Step four, the politicians create a brand new problem, a program to solve the new problem. And then step five, the new problem gets worse. Repeat step one. <laughs> so that's what happens. You know, they there is a problem. They put in a government policy to fix the problem that makes matters worse. That has unintended consequences. They create another program to solve those problems that doesn't work. And it's this cycle of, of more and more bad policies that make things worse and worse. So yeah, it's something. Jamie Tobit uh, says, I worry about the transition period from November to January, regardless of the winter. You're right. Um, if, if Trump loses, will those, you know, two and a half months between Election Day and Inauguration Day, would he do things to be um, excessively disruptive? Um, would he do things to kind of wreck the house before the new guy comes in? Um, speaking of which, it's kind of like what happened when what was it when Clinton 
lost and Bush came in or when Bush lost and Obama came in, the previous administration had like sabotaged part of the White House. Oh, I think they removed all the W keys on the keyboards, if I recall. Um, yeah, goofiness. So will will the during the lame duck period, will the Trump if assuming Trump loses, will he push through terrible policies? Will he create chaos, more chaos? Or if Trump wins, is he going to be extra emboldened and um, and then even become more aggressive? So, yeah, great, great concerns. I don't know the answer. I do know that no matter who wins the election, there's going to be potentially violence. Um, there's going to be a lot of questions about the, the validity of the results. I think um, the Republicans have created uh, enough fear, doubt, and uncertainty to um, get people to doubt the authenticity of the election. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that. You know, the mail-in ballots are fraudulent or people were suppressed from voting. It's going to be fraudulent. Um, yeah, Jamie says, yes, the W keys. And Pat Johnson said it was from Bush to Obama. Yes, I think the Bush people removed the W keys on the keyboard just to give a zinger to the Obama people. But that's kind of that's kind of fun. That's a little bit playful. Um, but, you know, it could be a hell of a lot worse. So we'll see. But um, yeah, let's again, I want to get into this idea of addition by subtraction. I want to talk a little bit about government policies that I think would benefit. And then I want to tell you about my own personal story of addition by subtraction that I went through this weekend that was extremely moving. Um, but to start with, um, a great example, in my opinion, of an addition by subtraction policy would be the war on drugs Um, because the war on drugs follows this five-step sequence. You know, politicians discover a crisis, you know, for them, it was people were using drugs and we can't have this. Right. And so they put in a government program to stop it. Right. So they had the war on drugs and the police were empowered to fight crime and to fight against, you know, drug dealers and drug users. But that created a whole new problem, right, that you had underground traffic and gangs were um, now distributing drugs. And that led to the death of innocent people that were caught up in the gang warfare. It led to disruption of families in Central America as drug warlords created disruption in their communities. It led to police being militarized, in some cases, police having excessive powers that damaged people, that violated their rights, that led to the death of people like Breonna. Donna Taylor, who were the victim of a no-knock warrant where the cops were shooting and she died. And we can go on down the list of all the examples of people that died at the hands of police because the police were in power because of the war on drugs. And a lot of my opinion, a real reason why there's a lot of criminal injustice today is partly because of the war on drugs. And it's because the police have been so far empowered that it has created, you know, this case where people are victimized, people are having their rights violated. And so that creates a whole other set of problems. And, and that's why Black Lives Matter is, is fighting back. And that's why there's protests in the street. And so, you know, the they come in with one program that creates other problems. Imagine if the war on drugs was subtracted, addition by subtraction. Imagine if people could buy those drugs legally. That doesn't mean that we want them to be using those drugs. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that People would be able to buy them legally. People would be able to buy them just like they buy beer or wine 
or onions, okay? You'd be able to buy them in a store. And in the store, it would be safe to buy them. You wouldn't be buying them from a shady character on a street corner. Um, They would also be inspected um, by reputable people, whether it's government inspectors or grocery inspectors or, or company inspectors. So the likelihood of you getting something, you know, that's laced with fentanyl would be greatly reduced. The drugs would be so much, you know, safer, Um, And the gangs would be completely, um, you know, they would be dis, uh, you know, they would be um, their power would be taken out from them. Not not unlike the uh, um, the gangs in the 1920s that profited from prohibition. Um, And then once alcohol was legalized, violence went down, gun deaths went down and the uh, the gangs were suddenly out of business. Imagine if we could do that today. Um, So. It seems that with the war on drugs, the problem is the fact that there's prohibition. Um, The fact that they are illegal encourages underground black market traffic, encourages um, a system where disputes are not handled in a court of law. You know, whether it's a trade dispute or a contract dispute, they're not handled, you know, in, in court. Instead, they're handled by a point of a gun, by vigilante justice. And people are killed um, as a result of this. And I've often said, if you want to really cut down on gun crime in America, if you really want to minimize unnecessary gun deaths in America, legalize drugs. Because a lot of the, you know, gang warfare where there are drive-by shootings, a lot of that is related to drugs, where people are fighting for turf, for territory, for, um, you know, they're, they're competing with the, with the point of a gun. Um, so talking about policies of addition by subtraction, that's a great one. But there's all kinds of other ones. You know, this trade war with China is just nonsense where, you know, they're putting tariffs on goods. It's making Americans pay higher prices just so we can benefit a tiny few people that work in a factory in Ohio. You know, so tariffs reward the very few at the expense of the very many. Those should be rolled back. Um, And even like the wars on immigration, the wars on poverty, all of those have created all these unintended consequences where they um, end up making matters worse. I mean, since we went into the war on poverty, has poverty significantly improved? It hasn't. Poverty was on a steep decline going into the early to mid 60s. And then once the war on poverty was um, enabled or was became law, then the the poverty line remained roughly steady. You know, a couple little ebbs and flows, but it didn't improve. Um, So in a lot of these government policies make matters worse. Um, And they often will come at the expense of the rights of, of individuals. So just so many cases of addition by subtraction that I think it'd be wonderful to see a political candidate that that was their, their platform is I'm not going to promise you anything new. I'm just going to take away all these terrible policies, you know, so that we can have a more peaceful society. We can have a more civil society, a society that respects civil liberties and, and, and civil rights and individual rights. Imagine that. But instead right now, the politicians, what they're all about is more power and more control for them. So they're never going to cut these bad policies because those are the policies that empower them. They're not going to give up power because they really don't care about you. They only care about their power. And again, I'll say this is mostly true 
of all politicians, but especially at the federal level. And then, you know, de- you know declining as they get to state and to the local. At the local level, most politicians are usually doing it for the right reasons. But even there, there is a great deal of power and control. And we see that even playing out in our city in Poway. Um, got another great one is the Cuba embargo. Um, so, God, that was one of the good things Obama did is he removed the, the trade embargo on Cuba and Americans could freely travel. And then, of course, what does President Trump do? He reestablishes the embargo. That's another addition by subtraction. If we were to allow people you know, to trade with Cubans, to have tourism with Cuba, that's a good thing. You know, people can connect and relate. And and um, I think that kind of liberty would be greatly improved. But those embargoes are put in place to empower the politicians and to give them more control. It's a sad deal. OK, so um, before I share my personal story, I, I do want to just say, if you like this podcast, please like it. Um, you know, I see a number of you are watching on the live stream and thank you for that. But, um, you know, only one of you is like the episode. So click on like. And again, I don't do it for my own like ego or gratification. I just do it because it helps the algorithm. And the more likes and subscribes that we get on YouTube, um, the more likes we get on Facebook posts, the more comments we get. It helps us in the algorithm so that we rank higher in searches and we can broaden our audience. So, oh, that, thank you. The likes just went up from one to three just by me asking. I appreciate that very much. Okay, so um, I want to tell you about this project that I was working on and um, a little bit of my personal life. So I'm 55 and, you know, my children now are young adults. They're 22 and 20 years old. It's amazing how much crap we accumulate over the course of our life. And I've been really making a big effort to go through all of my stuff and have been doing a massive addition by subtraction um, effort. And it's incredible the things that I've accomplished and the memories and the therapeutic benefit of all this. It's just so awesome. Um, I wrote a, a, a long email to my friend in San Francisco about it. And I just want to share the experience with you because it's just very moving for me. So you know, my wife, give her credit, she had done quite a bit of this inside the house, but I had to do the garage and the shed in our next to our garage. And boy, did we have a lot of crap out there. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, you know, I'm a, I own a small business, so I have a lot of my, my files, my old files for my business paperwork all out there. And so, man, I'm going through that and cleansing it and purging and in some cases shredding, other cases making a big pile of things I'm going to take to a shredder reliving memories of what I went through with my business and a lot of things, you know, during the great recession that were very, very challenging. Those were tough times. And here I'm kind of reliving, you know, some of those moments by looking at my contracts with clients and the projects I've done and the expenses with my vendors. And I'm looking at the date on those, knowing about how difficult it was back in that time. Reliving that was pretty amazing. And it makes me feel good about how far I've come in my business and how much better off I am now and how much um, my business strategically has improved and and how um, the economy has improved as well to help my business. But overall, I was able to climb out of that. You know, during that great um, recession, a lot of businesses, um, you know, they went out of business. They they filed Chapter 11, Chapter 13. They um, 
they just, you know, closed. And I went through an extremely difficult time because I own a marketing agency. And when you go through a rough economy, what's the first thing businesses cut? It's often their advertising budget, which ironically is the thing they probably should be spending money on is attracting customers. That should be a major effort when you're in a bad economy. But at any rate, you know, I suffered a great deal. A lot of my clients went out of business. Some of my clients, um, went out of business and owed me a great deal of money that I never got. I got screwed out of a lot of money. Um, I also um, had other clients that dramatically cut their budget and in some cases zeroed out their budget because it was such an uncertain time. Um, but I survived it. I did. And I'm really, really proud of myself for doing it. And so I kind of relived some of those moments, but I was in this case doing addition by subtraction by just purging a lot of this crap that I've had with me. But I also did that with media. So it's amazing, you know, how, God, we can roll the clock back. How in the 70s, we listened to vinyl albums. And we in the 80s, it was cassettes. And then in the 90s, it was CDs. Well, heck, in the 70s, there were 8-tracks too. And then we get into the 2000s, and it was Napster and the MP3s. And then it was the iPod and iTunes. And now it's streaming. And and so I have all these records and CDs and I'm going through all of those and you know, you can't see it right now, but up here in my office, up along the wall, I've got some of my favorite record albums. I have them in picture frames. Um, so that's kind of cool. And I like that as art in my office. Um, but I've got a ton of other vinyl albums out there and then vinyl albums that, you know, I inherited from my parents or my wife's parents. So I think I'm going to take those down to a secondhand um, record store and see if I can get a couple of bucks for them, because uh, I think other people would really appreciate them. But all the CDs and the DVDs and the VHS tapes and all of these things we accumulate and we don't use them anymore because I don't ever use a CD player. I certainly don't use a VHS player anymore. Um, the DVD I haven't used in, gosh, five years so it's interesting. I, I, I was having an emotional struggle going through them because I knew I spent a lot of money on that. And I knew that those artists and those movies were important in my life. But I had to do kind of like, you know who Marie Kondo is? She's, she has that show on Netflix and she's sort of the, the lady from Japan that's like this organizer. And um, she does this thing on her show. I watched one of them. It was really moving where she says, you have things in your life that are special, but it's okay to look at those things and talk to them. And, and I did that. I like was holding DVDs and CDs in my hands and saying, thank you. I was thanking the, the inanimate object. Thank you for what you've given to me in your, in my life. You improved my life. You made my life better, but now it's time to say goodbye. And it, and I still love you, but I need to transition. And so I was able to emotionally go through that. And it, you know, it was not easy. Um, it was funny too. I was going through, I found mixed tapes when I was in high school, um, mixed tapes with geez, Ozzy Osbourne and the, 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 the original Def Leppard albums. And Oh my God, the who, um, cause my buddies and I, we would, we would, you know, we were always making cassette tapes, copying off of, uh, off of vinyl albums. In some cases, getting things off the radio. I remember one of those tapes, I actually got a copy of the song Valley girl from, from was that was Frank Zappa, right? Um, so 
And I remember I was one of the few people in high school that had a cassette recording of Valley Girl. And the people that ran student government in high school were overjoyed to learn I had it. And they played it on the loudspeaker at lunch. And and that was right when it was really popular. And I just remember thinking it was kind of cool. But now looking back on it, it was kind of weird, kind of high school goofy. But, um, yeah, I found all those cassette tapes. And it's amazing that they traveled with me, you know, from high school to college at UC San Diego and the dorms and how many times I've moved. Oh my God. In college. And then in my twenties, I moved a million times and those cassette decks followed me. And then I was able to go through them and, and move on with them. But so, yeah, so I have, I, in my garage, I've actually went and got these postal crates um, that are technically illegal to use for private use, but I am. And I got them lined up in my garage and I've got all my things I'm pulling from my shelves and categorizing them to make them easy to pass off to the next person. Um, a lot of technology that I had, God, like old monitors and keyboards and mice and other gizmos, you know, like handheld Palm pilots. And, you know, I had recycled some of these some time ago, but there was still so much more that I had never gotten to. I have these old laptops that I still need to go through and wipe the hard disk or at least destroy the hard drive. But going through that phone systems that I had with my business when, um, you know, I was in an office and, you know, had my full team of people, we invested in a phone system. I've got that. So I'm going to be, you know, giving those to probably to an electronics recycler and they're going to probably monetize what they can. They're going to probably try to sell a lot of it on eBay. I don't really want to go through that trouble. I'll let them, you know, benefit from that, but I've been doing that and the tools. Oh my God, this is the part of it. That was unbelievable tools. It is insane how many tools I have. Um, And, you know, from myself, from my stepfather and from other people, I mean, you roll the clock back. I remember when I was a little kid and this is when before my mother remarried and I was being raised by my mom, my grandmother and my my aunt because my father was murdered when my mom was pregnant with me. And so I had a really interesting upbringing as a child. And so, you know, we had a house in Burlingame. Um, up in the Bay Area. And uh, my mom, I remember, you know, she worked um, all day. And my aunt at the time was going to high school. And my grandmother essentially raised me when I was really little. And of course, my mom helped out when she came home from work. But if we ever needed a screwdriver, we didn't really have a screwdriver. We just used a butter knife, you know, for a lot of those simple things. I remember that. Um, But then when my stepfather came into the picture and I was in the fourth grade, then suddenly we had a lot of tools. My stepfather was a carpenter and a truck driver and he worked on cars and suddenly tools were like a really, really big thing. Um, and, uh, and just a few other comments that are popping up. Pat Johnson, love it. Jamie Tobit. Yeah. Moon unit Zappa, I think Frank's daughter. Yeah. He might've been the one that did Valley girl. And then Pete Neal, if possession is 90% of the law, and you eliminate your possessions, are you only 10% legal? <laughs> I, well, I'm about to, what I'm basically getting to is that by eliminating a lot of these possessions, I become more of 100%. I'm shedding a lot of the junk. I'm shedding the things that are no longer necessary. I'm reducing the clutter physically as well as the clutter in my mind. And it's making me a better person. I can think more clearly and I'm going to be a lot more nimble and, and simple and more independent. It's just a great thing. But I want to go through this tool thing because it was incredible because 
again, when I got into the fourth grade, my mom remarried, stepfather, you know, truck driver, carpenter, worked on cars. Tools are a big thing. And I remember as a kid, I was kind of interested in it. But, you know, most of the time, my stepfather, I was like his gopher. It's like, hand me that Phillips screwdriver. Hand me that crescent wrench. And I, I just hated that, um, you know, because I was not really working on anything. I was just like the 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 the. I guess like the nurse at the surgeon table, you know, that they were the ones always handing off the tools. Um, then my stepbrother moved in with us. Um, my stepfather had children from other marriages. And you know, at the time, our house was like a revolving door of different people living with us. Um, a lot of them from my stepfather's previous marriages. And my stepbrother was really into motorcycles. And so he had a motorcycle and he would work on it in the garage. And then eventually I got a motorcycle. I remember I, he had a Suzuki RM125 and I think I had a Yamaha Enduro 100. And we would work on motorcycles together. And that was cool. And I, that's where I really learned to use tools. Um, and we would, we would be in, we had a, a two car garage, but it was an old garage, an old rickety wooden garage. And it was one of those ones that was, was vertical and um, not too wide. It was two in series um, and in, way in the back. Cause for the most part, easily half of our garage was full of just, I think my uncle's furniture and so on. It's just all kinds of just nonsense. But in the very back, we had like a little zone and my brother would play old George Carlin vinyl records of his comedy acts and old like kiss albums, like hotter than hell and, and love gun. And we listened to those back there. And this is like 1977, 78. And it was, it was pretty fun back then. And then, you know, that's when I started getting into tools a little bit. And then after that, I started getting into bicycle motocross, which was a gigantic part of my life from eighth grade until probably freshman year in college. And then I had my tools and I was always working on things. And then I also worked on my cars. I, I would do tune-ups on my car. I, I remember I changed the brakes on one of my cars and I was trying to be kind of like a handy guy, kind of like the way my stepfather and my stepbrother were. And, and so I began to pick up on some of those traits, but I knew I was never really good at it. I was enough to get by, but then my tools traveled with me just like my, my, um, my mixtapes of, of Def Leppard and Valley girl from high school, my high school tools traveled with me to UCSD and, and cause I had my, my BMX bike and then they traveled with me, you know, throughout college and as a young adult. And for the most part, my tools were really small. I had just a small little, in fact, I have a toolbox that I built in the ninth grade in metal shop. I built it myself and I still have it and it still works great. And it's still very durable. Um, I'm really proud of that. Uh, and I, I used to carry everything in that, but then over time, you know, what's interesting is that you, um, as you become an adult and then I get married and we have a condo in Carmel mountain ranch. And so I get some more tools to do some things around the condo. And then, Oh my God, we bought a house in Poway out on garden road and I bought more tools. And then I had to buy a big tool chest for all to put all my tools in. And then um, we moved here uh, to our new home in, in, in uh, North Poway in 07 and then it was a bigger house and there was more to do and I had more tools. And then um, my my parents um, 
you know, they, they had health issues. And so I had to kind of clear out the house that they were living in. And my stepfather had tons of tools and tools that were things that he had from a long time ago, but probably tools that he inherited from his father. So I ended up thinking when we cleaned out their house, I figured, oh, some of these I could sell rather than give away. But a lot of those tools were so old that there was no way that they would be really worth much, you know, to buy because nowadays, you know, all the power tools are cordless. Um, but these are old, like corded tools. Um, and, and then just an insane number of hand tools. Um, I mean, I, pipe wrench. I mean, it's just in, you know, those postal buckets I'm talking about, I probably have 10 of them lined up with tools just, and then knickknacks and hardware and just so much shit is unbelievable. And so I've been cleaning through that and I have all these buckets in my garage organized, you know, some with CDs, some with DVDs, some with hand tools, some with power tools, some with knickknack hardware items, some with office supplies, some with phone systems, some with computer uh, technology and monitors and keyboards and, 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 you know, old routers and just insane um, laptop computers. It's amazing how much crap there is. And I'm purging all of it. And it feels so good. Um, it's It feels good because I'm like unloading a lot of it and it's relieving burdens and, you know, like it's less noise in your mind. So it's, um, it's less clutter. It's not something hanging over you all the time. Like, Oh, I need, I need to go clean out the garage, you know, especially when my wife cleaned out like one of our storage closets and our pantry, she went through that. And then she says, okay, the garage is yours. And I knew I had to do this project at some point. Now it's no longer hanging over me because now it's almost done. Um, But purging a lot of that was just, insane. And then going through each of these, reliving those memories, you know, I'm reliving being in the back of my garage in Burlingame, listening to class clown by George Carlin and, and listening to Christine 16 on a kiss album in 1977. Um, I'm reliving Valley girl on a, on a mixtape that I made in high school. Um, I'm reliving, um, all of these movies and then the, the tools. Oh my God. I'm just reliving like being in the driveway and being a gopher uh, for my stepfather. I'm reliving, um, you know, back in my days of racing BMX, which were just extremely important in my life going through all that. So it's, it's a lot of this is like the Marie Kondo thing, right? So I'm, I'm saying thank you for everything that you've given me. But now it's time to turn the page. Now it's time to move on. It's okay to let these things go. So today I brought three of those bins to the Goodwill at the corner of Rancher Bernardo, no, Bernardo Heights and Pomerado. And that'll be one of many trips that I take that I can put in the back hatch of my little Hyundai Kona. And I'll be taking them one at a time. And eventually I'm going to take the vinyl records. I was going to go to Lose Records in Encinitas. I don't know if they take vinyl albums, but I saw that there's a place, I think it's in La Mesa or El Cajon, that's an old vinyl album store. So, I mean, I've got rock albums and I've got old, like, swing and Sinatra albums. Uh, I'm sure some of them are collector's items, um, but some of them will be, you know, very 
you know, important to other people, but my time with them is done. So, uh, and then the other part of this is interesting is now I'm just one guy. Okay. Going through all this crap. Now, meanwhile, my son, Trevor, he, he tells me he, cause he sees me in the garage working on this stuff. And I say, I'm cleaning everything. And he said, you know what? Our garage is really clean compared to my friend's parents' garage. And I'm thinking, oh my God, if we're really clean, what it's in their garage, they must have a ton of crap. And, and it's, and it goes back to that old, old George Carlin bit about our stuff and how we pack our stuff. And then we have so much stuff we have to store it. And then we got to pay to have a storage somewhere else for our stuff. And it's so true. Um, and then I think about like my, my buddy, Jack, he was telling me that his, you know, his parents, they live up in Marin County. He said he had like a three or a four car garage there that there's no cars in it. It's just full of shit and it's full of stuff and no one's gone through it in, you know, 10, 15 years. It's just, you know, at some point he's going to have to go through it. You know, at some point, you know, hope his parents live a very long time, but at some point he and his siblings are going to have to go through it. But then you think about all these people with all these garages, with all this stuff, like what are they doing with it? Where does it go? Who gets, goes through it? And then, yeah, it gets passed down and given to other people that they're able to use some of it, but eventually they get to a point where they're not going to use it and it's going to be thrown away. And then I think about like 2000 years from now, what are archeologists going to discover? Because right now, you know, they're overjoyed when they find an artifact from ancient Greece or from ancient Assyria or Mesopotamia. That's more than 2000 years ago. I think that's like three or 3,500 years ago. But imagine the the shit that archaeologists are going to find. Imagine like an archaeologist that's over at the Miramar landfill and they discover that 3000 years from now. They're going to find stuff there. And what are they going to think? You know, what are they going to think about our life and, the, and what was important to us? And, you know, their society is going to be very different. They're probably not going to have as much stuff. They're probably going to be wondering, why did we have so much stuff? So it, it, it going, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm in my garage. I'm working there. And I've been working on this. I've been chipping away at it on weekends for like two months. But this past weekend, I made big, big strides. And I'm in there, I'm listening to podcasts of other people and listening to, you know, other things that, to improve my life. Um, and that's good. But I, a lot of times I'm reliving those memories. Um, and it's special to relive those memories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it's still just incredible how much stuff there is and what I'm going to do with it all. And, and the tools. Oh, my God, there's so many tools. Um, it's and, and, you know, it's funny, like little things, like a lot of the tools that I have, like these really nice socket sets, but they're all like American size, like half inch, five eighths inch, where everything I'm going to need is metric, um, you know, for working on bicycles. So I'm just taking all these tools and I'm going down to a minimal set that can fit into a toolbox the size of like a tackle box. And then I've got my old toolbox that I made in the ninth grade in metal shop at Mills High School in Millbrae that I still have. And so I'm going to just what's going to be left there are going to be some pliers, some crescent wrenches, some fitted uh, wrenches, some screwdrivers, a hammer, just some basic tools. And then I figure if I ever need 
to do something around the house that requires a specialized tool, I'm not going to do the work myself, man. I'm 55. I'm going to hire someone to do it. And they'll bring their tools. They'll bring their circular saws and drills and everything else. I'm just unloading and purging and I'm not going to stop. I, I, I still have a little bit more to go through in the garage. I got to go through, I, we have a bunch of old paint cans. I got to go through those and take them up to the hazardous waste. There's, I did recently a big purge of clothes in my closet, excuse me, but I've got to do more. Um, I've got to go through another level of this. And if I'm being honest with myself, there are probably only about three or four pairs of pants that I really wear. Um, but I have like 20 or 30 pairs of pants in there, you know, pants when I was thinner (laughs) pants, when I was heavier, um, I think I'm just going to just min- go m- minimalize it. And I, I did a similar process back in 2013, I think it was, where I used to have a huge, this is probably 2011, 2012. I used to have a huge Chevy Silverado pickup. And this kind of, again, goes back to my roots and my stepfather and the whole pickup truck mentality was how I was raised. And um. I I had many different pickup trucks through my life, but I got to a point where I was, this was back when gas prices were expensive and there was a recession and the economy was difficult. And I just wanted a big, big change. And I sold the truck and I bought a Ford Fiesta, just a little itty bitty subcompact car. And that was a great car. And it was a stick shift and it was fun to drive. Um, And my family hated it because it was too small, but I loved it. And I love the fact that I went from something enormous to something really, really tiny. Like I swung the pendulum aggressively too far in the other direction. I could have gotten a mid-sized car. I could have gotten a, uh, a, uh, a small pickup like a Toyota. I could have gotten an SUV. I could have even gotten a large SUV. I mean, a large, you know, car-based SUV, like a, like my, like a CRV, like my wife was driving. But I just went as small as I could go within reason. I wasn't quite ready to get like a Mazda Miata, but um, I was so glad that I did. So I still have more stuff to go through. I'm going to go through another tier of this in my closet. I'm going to go through, um, I have my t-shirt drawers and all that. I could purge easily 80% of that. And I had already purged probably a third of it, but I know that what I want to do now is I'm just, I have momentum. And so now I'm in massive addition by subtraction mode and it's like completely taking over my mind. So I'm going to just radically cut it to something really, really small. And maybe I'm only going to have three or four pairs of pants in my, in my closet, you know, not counting my business suits. Um, And I'm just going to keep it simple. Less is more. And I'm going to be better for it. And I do know that, you know, Granted, my my children both live at home with us right now, um, but at some point, you know, we, we were empty nesters, and they we had the boomerang effect. They both moved back in, largely due to COVID. Um, but at some point, we're going to be empty nesters again. And so, at some point, I don't know when. At some point, we're going to sell this house. And when that happens, I'm going to have to do all this anyways. I'm going to have to go through all this. I'm going because we're going to end up moving. And I don't want to just keep moving the same box with the same 
mixtape that I made in 1981 that has, you know, Def Leppard songs and, and Valley Girl on it. So I don't need to keep schlepping that stuff around with me. So I'm just, I'm just going to get really aggressive with this. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really therapeutic. It really is. Um, and I don't know if you're doing this sort of thing. I don't know what your garage is like. I don't know what your junk drawers in your house are like. I don't know what your closet looks like. All I can tell you is, is this feels so damn good. Um, it feels good to unburden yourself of stuff. It also is kind of fun to go through things. In fact, um, I did find, I got some stuff over here. I did find, rediscover some things that I forgot about and I still have them. They're like copies of the UCSD Guardian and the UCSD Koala, which were the student newspapers and where there have been articles that were written about me and things. I, I found those and I'm like, great, this is terrific. So I did find, like I went through so much stuff. I probably saved a half of 1% of everything I'm going through. Um, and that was special too. So I'm happy for that. So, you know, again, this podcast, I talk about politics a lot, but I really want to be talking more and more about things we can do in our lives to improve our lives, things we can do in our business to improve our business. Politics provides an interesting jumping off point. Um, you know, we talked about a lot of policies that I think, the government would do well by addition, by subtraction, um, where I think the government would be better off by killing certain policies um, and and removing um, a lot of these ridiculous laws. And I think if they did that overall as a society, we'd be better off. Um, of course, that's never going to happen because all they care about is control and power over you. Um, but. I like using politics because the politics are what's current. That's what's in the news. That's what we follow. That's what's, I mean, the whole world is more politicized now than it's ever been. That's a nice way to build an audience. And I'm going to begin using this more and more as a jumping off point to talk about ways that I can share my own experiences that I think can be helpful to you in your life or in your business. So, if you want to continue the conversation, reach out to me on my Facebook page, John Riley Project. I have a special uh, Facebook group that's closed. It's invite only. You only have to answer a few questions. I let everyone in. It's called the John Riley Project Insiders Group on Facebook. I welcome you to find me there. And we have more in-depth conversations with some of the podcast fans and even some of our guests. We had a really, really hot and heavy conversation um, that was with one of my former guests and one of my um, my loyal fans. And it got it got pretty heated. So we have some really interesting conversations there in the John Riley Project Insiders Group. I welcome you to uh, join us there. And, uh, oh, Mike Polite uh, chiming in here. Got notified late on this one. Yeah, we're trying to do these live streams now every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2 p.m. Um, having the consistent schedule will make it better for my audience. So if, if you want to tune in, you know when. If you want to participate in the conversation by leaving your comments, I welcome those and I'll read them on the air. Um, now you know when. And then the other beautiful thing is, uh, and probably the biggest reason I like doing this, is it helps me. 
it it makes it me be more accountable to myself um, to have a consistent schedule to get in front of a camera on a consistent basis. It forces me to kind of get prepared and it forces me to be accountable to you and accountable to myself. It's a personal integrity thing. And I like that. And then this, the side benefit for me is now I'm producing more content. I have more episodes and now I'm getting more views and more downloads and my audience is building as a result. And a lot of podcast people have always said, the thing you got to do if you really want to make your podcast more successful is you have to be consistent. And for the longest time I did these episodes and I would just record them whenever I wanted to record them. And then I post them whenever. And I would have some months where I'd maybe have six episodes and other months I'd have 11. And, and I just did it when I felt like doing it, but now I'm doing it every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2 PM. And I've been good about doing it. Now I'm in my third week of doing it consistent. Um, and I'm hoping that I can continue this because I think it'll be good for me and it'll hopefully be good for you. Um, so yeah, you can reach out, uh, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. You can join the mailing list. There's lots of ways for you to connect. Um, I even have a complaint form there, johnreillyproject.com slash complaints. And you can, um, you know, let me know if you don't like what I'm talking about. Um, I always have a closing quote. And this is from Chris Evans. I guess it's an actor. I, I first saw this. I was thinking of Chris Everett, the tennis player. But um, this is Chris Evans, an actor. But it's a really good quote. And it, this takes me back, too. And it's about the idea of addition by subtraction, about less is more. And he says, I feel like my style has always been influenced by less is more. The coolest styles are kind of simple and classic, like a white T-shirt and jeans. Maybe you have a cool belt or cool shoe, shoes, but everything else you keep simple. And from a, this is a fashion angle. I'm, I'm not known to talk about fashion, but I remember, man, back when I was in high school, I did that. I would wear um, 501 jeans, white slip-on Vans, um, and uh, sometimes uh, other colored Vans. I've been wearing Vans tennis shoes since the seventh grade. And I still wear Vans tennis shoes. I haven't had, there hasn't been a minute in my life since the seventh grade where I haven't had at least one pair of Vans tennis shoes in my closet. I wear them religiously. I'm like a ma major loyal fan. But yeah, back in high school, I remember 501s, jeans, white Vans, and often a white t-shirt, or I would wear like, just like this shirt here, like the button down collared shirt, but white. And it was just simple. It was clean. It was a great look. I love that. So this, this is an interesting quote. I feel like my style's always been influenced by less is more. The coolest styles are kind of simple and classic, like a white T-shirt and jeans. Maybe you have a cool belt and cool shoes, but everything else you keep simple. The idea is right. Less is more. Addition by subtraction. Keep it simple, stupid. I talk about Kiss and the Kiss albums I listen to in the back of my garage. Keep it simple, stupid. Kiss, that's a great meth, uh, thing. I, I tend to make things more complicated than they should be. But yeah, keep it simple. So that's my message to you, uh, addition by subtraction. God, we talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Republicans. We talked about the Trump supporters and Poway. We talked about the Padres clinching a playoff spot. And we talked a great deal about going through my old family things and a lot of the junk that's been following me around 
my 55 years of life. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. This is an hour and a half long. I see many of you have been with me almost the entire time. Thank you for your support and have a great day. Um, And we'll be back at you Wednesday at two o'clock. We'll see you later, friends. Bye-bye. Slam Diego, baby. Let me write that one down. Slash complaints. Yeah, it's johnreillyproject.com slash complaints. Pat Johnson said, I started cleaning at the beginning of COVID and you have motivated me to keep going. Great show. Thanks again, Pat. All right, friends, we'll see you later.